0: All right, Wrestling with Theology fans, it is Monday, so it's time to stand in the confessional corner. Today, looking at the distinction between church and state, especially as we look at Article 16 in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and then moving into 17, which is very short on the time when the church becomes the state, when Jesus returns in judgment. So chapter, or article 16 of the Augsburg Confession. The adversaries accept article 16 without exception. In it, we have confessed that it is lawful for the Christian to hold office, sit in judgment, determine matters by the imperial laws and other laws currently in force, set just punishments, engage in just wars, act as a soldier, make legal contracts, hold property, take an oath when public officials require it, and contract marriage. Finally, we have confessed that legitimate public ordinances are good creations of God and divine ordinances which a Christian can safely use. This entire topic about the distinction between the spiritual kingdom of Christ and a political kingdom has been explained in the literature of our writers. Christ's kingdom is spiritual, John 18, 36. This means that the knowledge of God, the fear of God and faith, eternal righteousness, and eternal life begin in the heart. Meanwhile, Christ's kingdom allows us outwardly to use legitimate political ordinances of every nation in which we live, just as it allows us to use medicine, or the art of building, or food, drink, and air. Neither does the gospel offer new laws about the public state, but commands that we obey present laws, whether they have been framed by heathens or by others. It commands that in this obedience we should exercise love. Karlstadt was crazy to impose on us Moses' judicial laws. Our theologians have written more fully about these subjects. They have done so because the monks spread many deadly opinions in the church. They called holding property in common the governance of the gospel. They said that not holding property or not acquitting oneself at law were evangelical counsels. These opinions greatly cloud over the gospel and the spiritual kingdom and are dangerous to the commonwealth for the gospel does not destroy the state or the family, but rather approves them and asks us to obey them as a divine ordinance, not only because of punishment, but also because of conscience. These are the first few paragraphs of this article and there's a lot of stuff in there that talks about what we are talking about and struggling with today. In the 16th century with the Reformation, you had the group known as the Anabaptists, most notably requiring baptism of infants to be redone, so getting the name those who baptize again. But they also refuse to have anything to do with the secular kingdoms. This is why their theological descendants are the Amish and the Mennonites and the Hutterites and those who go off into their own colonies and shun the world in order to more specifically understand and rely on the gospel for their salvation. Of course, the gospel for them being a gospel of works, which isn't a gospel at all. But this is who the Reformers and Melanchthon were writing about in the Augsburg Confession and now repeating again in the Apology, that especially the Anabaptists, did not believe that it was lawful for the Christian to hold public office, to sit in judgment, to determine matters by the imperial laws and other laws currently in force. That we could not set just punishment, could not engage in just wars, could not be a soldier, could not make legal contracts, own property, or take an oath, or even contract marriage by the state. And this has come up this year with so many things going on in the world and in the legal system as to what role does the church and the pastors in the church have for the uh, officiating of marriages especially that has come up and i'm still working through the document uh, put out by the commission on theology and church relations Regarding clergy as agents of the state, because it is in that moment where the pastors are not only people from the church and the representatives of the church, but they are also representing the state because marriage is a secular issue. It is a secular thing, not a theological segment, not a religious thing. Many people get that confused because, well, it's got to be religious because we have to have it in a church. Well, you and I have both known many people who, you know, may be very religious as well, but don't have their wedding in a church, have it outside, which again, with marriage being a secular contract, the place doesn't matter. And the officiant doesn't matter because it is a secular system. They get to set up who is and who is not allowed to officiate at weddings. These are all things that the Anabaptist, and then even Karlstadt as a Lutheran supporter, who then became one of Luther's biggest critics, wanted to create a theocracy where church and state were the same exact thing. The problem was, though, that they were fighting against the Roman church which had basically been the church that swallowed up the Roman Empire and especially the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, If you look back at the uh, politics around the election of the emperor, you have seven electors. Three of them are archbishops in the church. High-ranking officials. And the other four are uh, princes that have inherited their kingdoms. So, you see that there is a lot of variation in what is the difference between church and state. What is the distinction? What are the proper roles? And in this article, we do not get into that in great detail as we will in other places in the confessions. But this just gives the starting point because it becomes later on a greater issue, especially as we get into like the small cult articles and the formula of Concord, that we need to discuss these even further. But we move on into paragraph 58. Julian the Apostate, Celsus, and very many others objected to Christians that the gospel would tear states apart because it forbade legal remedy and taught certain other things ill-suited to political association. Origen, Nazianzus, and others wonderfully worked on these questions. However, they can easily be explained if we keep this in mind. The gospel does not introduce laws about the public state, but is the forgiveness of sins and the beginning of a new life in the heart of believers. Besides, the gospel not only approves outward governments, but also subjects us to them, Romans 13.1. In a very similar way, we have been necessarily placed under the laws of seasons, the changes of winter and summer as divine ordinances. The gospel forbids private remedy. Christ instills this often so that the apostles do not think they should seize governments from those who held otherwise, just as the Jewish people dreamed about the kingdom of the Messiah. Christ did this so that the apostles might know that they should teach that the spiritual kingdom does not change the public state. Therefore private remedy is prohibited not by advice, but a command. Matthew 5.39 and Romans 12.19. Public remedy, made through the office of the public official, is not condemned, but is commanded and is God's work, according to Paul. Romans 13. Now, the different kinds of public remedy are legal decisions, capital punishment, wars, and military service. Clearly, many writers have thought wrongly about these matters. They were in error that the gospel is an outward new monastic form of government. Also, they did not see that the gospel brings eternal righteousness to hearts while it outwardly approves the public state. Again, the most important thing is what we have to keep in mind when we have the idea of church and state from a Lutheran perspective. The gospel does not introduce laws about the public state. It has nothing to do with the public state. The gospel is the forgiveness of sins and the beginning of a new life in the hearts of believers. That's what the gospel is all about. It has nothing to do with how the external government of the world is set up. But many people, again, try to loop it around to make the gospel into a new law. And it's exactly what the reformers are fighting against because they are not wanting to see a theocracy where a church bishop is set up as the ultimate ruler because they've seen what has happened to that in the last thousand years with the Pope being the Bishop of Rome and being the oversight of the nations of the world. It doesn't work that way. It still does not work that way. We continue on in paragraph 61. It is also a most empty myth that Christian perfection consists in not holding property. For Christian perfection does not consist in contempt for public ordinances, but in the inclinations of the heart, in great fear of God, and in great faith. Abraham, David, and Daniel, even in great wealth and while exercising public power, were no less perfect than any hermits. But the monks have spread this outward hypocrisy before the eyes of the people. They have done this so that the things in which true perfection exists could not be seen. How they have praised holding property in common as though it were evangelical. But these praises are very dangerous, especially since they are very different than the Scriptures. Scripture does not command that we hold property in common. The law of the Ten Commandments, when it says you shall not steal, Exodus 20:15), distinguishes rights of ownership and commands each one to hold what is his own. Clearly, Wycliffe was speaking madness when he said that priests were not allowed to hold property. There are countless discussions about contracts. Good consciences can never be satisfied about them unless they know the rule that it is lawful for a Christian to make use of public ordinances and laws. This rule protects consciences. It teaches that contracts are lawful before God just to the extent that the public officials or laws approve them. Again, if we were not allowed by the gospel to have private property, there would not be the seventh commandment, you shall not steal, because that by its very nature shows rights of ownership and private property. And everything does exist, and goes into the extent that the law allows it. Melanchthon finishes up this article. This entire topic about public affairs has been clearly set forth by our theologians. Very many good people working in the state and in business have declared that they have benefited greatly by it. Before troubled conscience... Before... Troubled by the opinion of the monks, they doubted whether the gospel allowed these public offices and business. As a result, we have repeated these things so that outsiders may also understand that the doctrine we follow does not wreck the authority of magistrates and the dignities of all public ordinances. Rather, they are strengthened even more. Previously, the importance of these matters was greatly clouded over by those silly monastic opinions. They preferred the hypocrisy of poverty and humility to the state and the family. The latter have God's command, while this platonic community of monasticism does not. Again, Melanchthon says, we have talked about this over and over and over again in the writings of many of our theologians, and people have benefited greatly from it. And what is the kicker? is that the very people who are saying that owning property in common and not having private property is more God-pleasing than what God has already established in the state and in the family. That, no, we have to run off somewhere else outside of every other construction and try to just be the church in a community. Well, God put us in a place, to be the church in the community wherever we are. It doesn't matter whether we're in the United States, if we're in China, if we're in Brazil, if we're in Russia, if we're in South Africa or Egypt or Iran, Iraq, Israel, wherever we are, we are called to be the church in that place to use and to obey the laws of those places In order to help spread the gospel. Not of what you need to do. But of the forgiveness of sins. Eternal salvation. And new life. For people. This is what Melanchthon is trying to figure out. And try to wrap his brain around. People who think that this new life. Is through things that we do. No it's pure gift. And he tries to figure out. Why other people don't understand that. But it will all be straightened out one day. And that's Article 17. One simple paragraph. The adversaries accept Article 17 without qualification. In it, we confess that Christ will appear at the consummation of the world. He will raise up all the dead and will give eternal life and eternal joys to the godly. 2 Timothy 4, eight, But he will condemn the ungodly to endless punishment with the devil. Matthew 25.46 Everyone agrees in the Christian church that Christ is coming back and he is coming back for judgment. He is coming back to bring us who believe in him into heaven with him. If I go to prepare a place for you, he says in John 14, I will come back so that you may be where I am. Everyone believes that. Who believes in the resurrection of the dead, who believes in heaven. Jesus is coming back. Now, granted, there are other non-Christian religions that believe in heaven. They have some idea of heaven being pure and holy and all of that and being much greater than the world we have here. But again, it's belief in Jesus and his word and his way that's what brings us about. And it's his word in the gospel that shows us That we are free to do whatever the law of the land allows us. As long as it does not conflict with God's law. There's the major point. There's the sticking point. And there's where we're going to stop today. Is that we can use the laws of the land as they help to proclaim the gospel and help the spread of it. We are not to try to take over the government to make Whatever place we are at, into a new utopia. People have tried that over and over and over again, and they always fail. And the gospel is not something that is based on whether we succeed or whether we fail, it is all based on Christ. All right, we have been standing in the confessional corner this week. I am Pastor Doug Minton. Thank you for being here. Come back for Pro Wrestling America on Wednesday, digging deeper on Thursday. But also, Friday of this week is the 17th, which means that it is the beginning of the run of the O Antiphon series of devotions based on the O Antiphons on the seven days preceding Christmas Eve. So I encourage you to be here for that and to get into the end of Advent, beginning of Christmas season spirit by hearing the great words that have been echoed for centuries. Until next time, this is again Pastor Doug Minton wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology. Amen.